This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. He's Scott, I'm Mia, and today we're looking at Chapter 14, Catelyn 3 of A Game of Thrones. Here is the chapter summary according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Catelyn's breakdown over Bran's fall ends when an attempt is made on Bran's life. Catelyn delays the assassin long enough for Bran's direwolf to arrive and kill the assassin. Catelyn is now convinced Bran did not fall, but was pushed. Okay, so for today's episode, I wanted to return to the topic of grief and its relationship with gender. And specifically, I wanted to look at patterns of grief and how we understand right ways to mourn as opposed to wrong ways. And to consider this in light of how Catelyn Stark's character is constructed within this chapter and within this story which is a very specific construction of the married noble woman. But first, Mia, did you have any opening thoughts on this chapter? I really like this chapter. I like seeing the transition of Catelyn from a rightfully pretty destroyed woman grieving for her son to seeing, I guess, a new purpose for herself and moving forward. Like, you definitely see this kind of strength from her that I don't think I ever didn't think was there, but... I forgot the kind of the degree of clarity that uh, is brought through in this chapter of just how kind of like how much she really does take charge of her family and how much the people around her really respect her. You know, you get the interplay with people like Theon and things like that. Even, you know, Theon is still quite immature and I don't want to like suggest that Theon is all of a sudden this, you know, hugely loyal subservient person to Kat obviously he's not but clearly he still has respect for her and her as the lady of Winterfell so I I really liked just seeing the degree to which everyone trusted her and knew that she was doing what she believed was right for the family and that they probably agreed with yeah and you also see in how they react to her when she's still caught up Mm. in her grief pattern how taken aback they are by the things they are seeing her say or hearing her say and seeing her do because it is so out of character for her which also gives you that sense of who Catelyn Stark normally is and I think also importantly they don't even though they see it as uncharacteristic of her normal behavior they don't let that then undermine her authority later in the chapter they just trust that Mm. everything's fine it's not like she's going they're they're not looking at her basically and saying, well, you've been a bit off. Maybe we should be going and asking them about this. They just go, cool, this is the cat I'm used to. Let's do it. In fact, the new captain of the guards turns to her and asks her what they mm. should do. And in fact, he should be turning to Rob, which Cat reminds mm. him of. So again, yeah, it, it's that sign that Catelyn has the status within Winterfell as the lady of the house that brings a lot of expectations and authority, which is very interesting to see considering the way in which a lot of female characters are characterized within the genre. 
Yeah, and it's going to be interesting as you move forward because I think we probably have a, a higher percentage than average when it comes to epic fantasy literature, especially that beginning before the current century. You you get cut, but also we'll see in the future the way that people respond to Cersei, the way that people respond to Elena, the way that people respond to Ariane. There are many women who head up households uh, in ways that the, the men around them respect. And I think that's still unusual to see the the <laughs> that many women in a single series have that kind of status. Usually it's like an exceptional woman. Okay, so today we'll be referring to Kenneth Docker and Terry Martin's Grieving Beyond Gender, Understanding the Ways Men and Women Mourn, which was published in 2010. Now, these are two professors of psychology, which is not <laughs> our field of expertise by any stretch, but I do find it interesting in the way in which Docker and Martin reconceptualize how we think about patterns of grief and their different adaptive strategies, because it introduces nuance into how we might analyze its representation in things like A Song of Ice and Fire, particularly in the way that it challenges purely deterministic gendered models of understanding. So Docker and Martin say, quote, there are many different ways in which individuals experience, express, and adapt to grief, end quote. So Docker and Martin describe specifically two patterns of grieving, which are intuitive and instrumental. Intuitive patterns describe, quote, where individuals experience and express grief in an affective way. In this pattern, grieving individuals will find adaptive strategies that are oriented toward the expression of affect, end quote. So examples of this pattern of grief involves individuals generally being more receptive to accepting help, and are more openly expressive of emotion. So you might think of an example as someone who does go out of their way to seek grief counseling, for example. Instrumental patterns, conversely, are when, quote, grief is experienced physically, such as in a restlessness or cognition. Here, the adaptive strategies individuals use tend to be cognitive and active as well, end quote. So they go on to say that, quote, some instrumental grievers attempt to evaluate their experiences cognitively rather than experience them emotionally, end quote. Other instrumental grievers may seek immersion in some form of activity, and that activity can both be directly tied to the loss or completely unrelated. Instrumental grieving is seen as, quote, typical of the way many men grieve due to contemporary patterns of male socialization, end quote. So the inverse is true of intuitive grieving and women. Docker and Martin, however, argue that grieving patterns, quote, are influenced by gender, but not determined by it, end quote, which is why they ultimately decided to askew or avoid any sort of gender related terms like male grief or masculine grief in describing the instrumental pattern. And so by this logic, men and women, as well as individuals who do not identify as either, obviously can experience elements of both patterns or more strongly with patterns that do not necessarily correspond with gendered expectations of their bodies. So the primary contention of their research is that, quote, although instrumental and intuitive patterns exist, are equally effective and have complementary sets of advantages and disadvantages, Instrumental styles are often viewed negatively within counselling, self-help, and grieving literature. This reflects a general Western bias in counselling that tends to value affective expressiveness as inherently more therapeutic than cognitive or behavioural responses, end quote. 
And so they go on to emphasize how, quote, there is a danger in identifying grief with any affective expression. The danger is that the absence of affect is taken to be an absence of attachment, end quote. So Docker and Martin go on to say that, quote, to assert that only one pattern is acceptable is empirically ungrounded, at variance with current theory, and clinically unhelpful, end quote. And I would also ignore a whole range of cultural factors that shape how we are socialized into different expectations of grief as well, I would add. So this prompts a couple of questions that I think we should keep in mind as we unpack this chapter and going forward in A Song of Ice and Fire, and that is how is grief represented so far in the text as well as in the future, and how is its quotation marks effectiveness or, again, quotation marks correctness framed by certain characters? How might we interrogate the relationship between notions on toxic masculinity and its antipathy toward emotions and affect as well? I don't think any of the claims that either Docker or Martin are making in this research suggests that we should then stop critiquing our socialization of men into resisting emotions. It's more, it introduces a more nuanced approach to how people grieve does not necessarily throw out instrumental grieving as something that is unhealthy. Yeah, I find this interesting. And um, your note about male grief struck me because I think we, the two of us, are both, you know, we've both taught gender studies. We're both uh, very familiar with a lot of gender theory. And I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking of ourselves as talking to other people who are also... (laughs) very vast in gender theory. So we may often fall into the trap of expecting the people that we're speaking to to understand that when we say something like male grief, underneath that word male is a whole bunch of complex social cultural um, entanglements that are informing the maleness. And it's not that maleness is either prescriptive or irrelevant It's neither of those things. In fact, understanding how gender comes to be understood as wrapped up in grief is incredibly important. It's something that we don't want to be ignoring, even if we don't believe (laughs) that these are inherent things or innate things that come through. The, The fact that there are, one, associations that are to do with gender, but also that there are expectations and that there are consequences in some social contexts to not following particular gender scripts. That's that's really important. And it's not really the, the topic of this episode, but certainly in the future we will discuss things like phenomenology and how um, the way our behavior and understanding of ourself actually emerges as a social and cultural product that can't really be just taken aside and be like, oh, well, you know, this is, you're just doing something because someone told you to because you're a girl or you're a boy and that's the end of it. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. So with that in mind, it's worth spending a moment just going back to some of our previous chapters and how we've discussed grief in those specific chapters. So obviously in Edard 1, we really explicitly discussed grief and that was that idea of, of male grief. And I think it's interesting to dig a little deeper into Robert and Ned's expressions of grief, which are both different 
but certainly both really clearly play into gendered scripts. And when I say gendered scripts, we're talking about Westeros because as Toby noted in their episode, uh, we have places like Karth, which open weeping is not just something that people are allowed to do as men, but is actually a mark of how civilized you are. But here in Westeros, that's not the case. So we have Robert's grief, which uh, manifests in his romanticization. He reimagines the past based on this idealized image in his head. We do have some suggestions from Ned. I think we should be skeptical of these to some extent, but we get suggested through Ned's perspective that Robert's essentially, for want of a better phrase, let himself go over the years. So Ned focuses a lot on his body. He thinks about, you know, his drinking and his behavior with women. So we can recontextualize these behaviors as potentially influenced by his grief. Although, once again, one, we want to be skeptical that that's actually happening. But two, we also need to understand that even if there is a direct kind of link there, those behaviors are still significantly informed by social and cultural expectations. And then we get Ned, who buries his grief. Ned is someone who does not express how he's feeling very readily Uh, we can imagine to some extent he will probably share some things with Kat in the confines of their bedroom in that kind of private space but he he very much kind of embodies this idea of stoicism as a value that I think it's fair to say is considered to be a desirably masculine trait and uh, would be socially rewarded where he lives yeah, so based off that recap, I would argue that Ned certainly leans more into an instrumental pattern of grieving. He actively represses his memories, but importantly, the felt necessity to do so is not consciously informed by gender norms. As you say, I still think he adheres fairly faithfully to gendered scripts, but not following that consciously. So consciously for Ned, it has little to do with masculine expectations, but rather Ned's sense of what is right. So in regards to protecting children, his promise to Lyanna, as well as kind of a defensive mechanism to protect John as well. But he does find a way to process his grief in the form of Winterfell's crypt. So a materially external way to communicate his mourning and honor the dead. We spoke about how Lyanna and Brandon's crypts are a metaphor for Ned's approach to grief. They are buried, literally, as you said, beneath the surface at a subterranean level, which contrasts with how Robert feels they, or Liana, should be memorialized. That is on the surface, so available for all to see. However, it is important to think about what that space is and, and who accesses it. It is a stark place, and various members of the family, including Theon, are intimately familiar with it. Ned, in a sense, is communicating his loss to them and to future generations. We know that non-Starks do visit, but the place does tend to be avoided because of superstition. So his shifting of tradition, not something we really know Eddard for, can be seen as a profound gesture representing loss, and it may be interpreted as opening an avenue for future Starks to similarly honour their wider families as opposed to just the Lords. So... The idea of following tradition in this respect may have actually been insufficient for Ned's grieving needs. Interestingly, though, Ned does not similarly retcon his father's choice to follow tradition when it comes to Ned's mother. So there's no sort of monumental crypt to his mother, which is interesting. 
And I don't think Ned ever actually consciously thinks about his mother when he's alive, too. So I don't know if that's just Martin not really having any idea of who she is and whether she's important or not. But yeah, it, it's one of those gaps in Ned's history that a lot of fans have wondered over over the years. And then Robert is somewhat more intuitive than Ned, which is probably the only time I would actually <laughs> say that sentence. Um, and we see this reflected in how he perceives Ned as grieving wrong. So his own thoughts on how Liana should be memorialized is an extension of that metaphor. So she should be on the surface and publicly visible, much like you could argue Robert himself wears his grief. It is also a metaphor for how Robert has this idealized memory of who Liana was, literally putting her on a pedestal, as we argued. So his romanticization. Obviously, the circumstances that have produced the Robert we meet are much more complex than simply grieving for Liana. But it is certainly, it is a dimension within his hostile marriage and the motivation for his inability to move on from the Targaryens. And this brings us to the other way that Robert thinks Ned grieves wrong. He sees that it has not morphed into this perpetual hatred. We saw that in Ned Ard too. Hence why he feels compelled to remind Ned what Ares and Rhaegar did to his family. So hate, rage and anger are just as part of effective expression as crying and so forth. In this way, we might even be able to read Robert's example as one that highlights how intuitive grieving can go wrong, pushing back against this normalized idea that to embrace your emotional reaction to loss is inherently more healthy than to repress it. Now, to be fair, maybe Robert lacks the outlet to process his grief and move on. Maybe he really does need that public monument to compartmentalize his emotions, create a place for him to honor her and engage in his emotions so that it does not seep into everything else. All right. And then the other significant example of grief I've had up until now has obviously been Kat and is very much the subject of the chapter that we're looking at now. But it's worth also reflecting back to John too, because I think this chapter gives us some really good indicators of how other people understand Kat's grief, as uh, we've said so far. Like, you know, people are noticing that this is not her. But I mean, John too gives us literally the POV of someone who is on the outside and is perceiving her grief and, and thinking about what it means to, yeah, to see her as she is right now and kind of comparing it to this this knowledge of cut in the past so in our little birds episode we looked at that line of the it should have been you that cat says that is often really highly criticized and, and we were a little bit more understanding of the line i think because it sits right between two really important actions first catlin calling john by his name which john notes is unusual for her and second afterwards Catelyn crying, which is something that John has also not really witnessed. Um, so the chapter essentially tells us that this behavior is odd and we can understand broadly one in, in, you know, it gives us a bit more sympathy when it comes to Kat's behavior, which is not excusable, but certainly understandable. But also it, it's telling us a little bit about how she experiences grief and how she's processing what is happening to her family right now. Yeah, and we get several more beats of that in Catelyn 3, which underscores how Catelyn is behaving extremely out of character. So we have her refusing to adhere to her duties, such as absentmindedly forgetting that Winterfell has no steward, yet refusing to appoint any of the officers. 
She thinks of Maester Lewin as a little grey rat, um, which contrasts with how she viewed him in a previous chapter as basically a part of the family and trustworthy enough to include in their discussions about Lysa's accusations. Like, he has quite an esteem within that family. We have her outburst over the horses, which is very reminiscent of her hateful comment towards John. You know, she proclaims that she would slaughter them all if it would wake Bran from his comatose state. You know, similarly, her screaming and begging for the wolves to be silenced, even killed before passing out, is another example of that as well. And maybe hold on to those two mm. comments as well for our next episode, because they will be relevant. As well as, you know, not sleeping, not eating, or ever leaving the room. So, but although perhaps the most salient sign of her uncharacteristic behaviour is the memory of how she begged Ned to stay. Quote, she had begged Ned not to go. Not now. Not after what had happened. Everything had changed now. Couldn't he see that? It was no use. He had no choice, he had told her. And then he left. Choosing. But again, this above all else stands really in contrast with her beliefs in a previous chapter. And I'm not sure Catelyn Tully Stark would actually expect Ned to stay under most circumstances. I, I feel like, yeah, this is Catelyn Tully not acting like herself. I do love how we still get small glimpses of Catelyn Tully that we recognise, you know, here and there, such as her noticing Rob's sword even before she collapses. But uh, that observation does not really get connected to any thought or interpretation, which highlights that disconnect between Cat's observational skills and her conscious thoughts in the moment of grief. And again, right before the assassin attacks, she is definitely firm in her knowledge of everyone who works in the Winterfell stables and that he is not one of them. That is the knowledge of a proactive and engaged noblewoman, experienced with being hands-on in the day-to-day -day operation of the stronghold. Yes, I think you could imagine many noblewomen would not have been able to make yeah. that assessment. Both Lewin and Rob present different approaches to trying to coax Catelyn out of this state, and I think both reflect how they have come to regard her and are both really surprised in how they respectively fail. So our perspective on Lewin in this chapter is obviously shaped by Kat's rather harsh thoughts. It would not surprise me if we were given Lewin's perspective, though, his, his point of view right before going into that room that he probably believed prompting Catelyn to engage in this kind of work of managing Winterfell would have been an appropriate way to help her move past this profound grief, especially after eight days have passed uh, since Bran's fall. I would argue that reflects an expectation that Catelyn would be more inclined to instrumental grieving than otherwise. Meanwhile, Rob is more direct with her, both softly and sharply, and his arguments are anchored in practicality. And by that, I mean the impractical use of her being so attentive to Bran when everyone expects him to survive and come out of the coma as well as her not fulfilling her role as Lady Stark in Eddard's absence. So both as a mother to Rickon and Rob, but also as a guiding hand for Rob in terms of him acting as Lord of Winterfell, as well as um, the day-to-day -day duties of managing the castle. So Catelyn is neglecting her duties as well as failing to take care of herself in the most fundamental of ways. So neglecting rest, neglecting um, food, Hence why the servants overdo it when they dish up what to serve her after a long rest. I think in this way, we are inclined to see that this grieving pattern is unhealthy. The second half of the chapter highlights how Catelyn feels shame at the way that she has been grieving as well, even describing herself as, quote, half mad with grief, end quote. And we get another clear indication that this is how she feels. 
Quote, Catelyn remembered the way she had been before, and she was ashamed. She had let them all down. Her children, her husband, her house. It would not happen again. She would show these northerners how strong a tully of River Run could be. So she feels strangely resolute now, which is to say that she is habitually resolute as a person, and she has found her way back to it. But it feels strange because she hasn't been acting like that for over a week. We immediately see that in action with how she navigates the rest of the chapter. So she is observant, she's deductive, she's effectively guiding Rob rather than telling him how to act or think, ensuring others respect his authority as acting Lord of Winterfell, accepting without despair Lewin's update on Bran's health. I mean, there's a pretty telling quote there where she says, quote, it was the reply she had expected, no more and no less. End quote. So, I mean, that's the Cutlin Tully we know. And then her shift in attitude towards the wolves, which I feel like is emphasized with the second yes after a pause so that the reader pays attention to that shift. And she also is clear-headed enough to realize she really is the only person who can go to King's Landing. Did you have anything to add there, Mia? Yeah, I, I think actually this chapter, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I feel like this chapter is actually presenting us with some opportunities to resist what Rob is saying, what Kat is telling us directly. So we're getting this message that the way she's behaving is like unhealthy. She is essentially failing in her duties as a mother. We're kind of getting these messages from Rob and Kat, and we're also getting the messages that how she's behaving is unusual. And yet, as you say, we know that she's the only person who can make this trip. So clearly she does when she's in her like, quote, rational frame of mind at the end of the chapter, decides that Rob and Rickon are not the top priority for her right now. Um, But also we get her explicitly tell us that if she had not been so consumed by grief, she would have made the, again, seemingly rational decision to go and deal with the fire that had been set by the assassin. And instead she stayed with Bran, which was not apparently the rational decision. And that is what protected him and saved his life. So I think without coming out and saying it, the chapter is creating opportunities. It's creating a bit of a wrinkle there and allowing us to resist the more obvious reading that the way that she's expressing her grief is unhealthy and improper when she's failing, essentially. So the last thing I want to talk about in this chapter is the the way it's written and how the writing allows us to understand grief in this chapter. So, and, and the reason I actually wanted to do this is the enhanced edition had this comment that just really stood out to me as an interesting choice for the enhanced edition to make. Not an incorrect thing to say, but just not what I expected as commentary from the enhanced edition. So basically the quote that it's signaled next to is this, quote, Catelyn was shaking. It was grief, the cold, the howling of the direwolves. Night after night, the howling and the cold wind and the grey empty castle, on and on they went, never changing, and her boy lying there broken, the sweetness of her children, the gentlest, Bran, who loved to laugh and climb and dreamt of knighthood, all gone now, she would never hear him laugh again, end quote. And what the enhanced edition says next to this is, quote, the ice and fire novels are written in close third person, and this is one of the places where the stylistic possibilities this technique provides become clearest. This run-on sentence with its many clauses shines a light on Catelyn's frantic, exhausted mental state, end note, which is, it was a very spark notes thing for it to do, which I found kind of funny, but it's right. I think we haven't really talked about the way that Martin from a purely stylistic perspective, writes A Song of Ice and Fire, and I think that is something that we'll touch on at different points throughout. 
but let's talk about this. Uh, so as the enhanced edition notes, it's the, the books are written in close third person, which is actually my favorite style of writing. That's what I like to read. Also known as third person limited omniscient. Um, so essentially you're getting knowledge about what's happening, but in a very specific way. So we don't know things in this current chapter that Kat doesn't know. And when we get to the Ned chapter, we only know what Ned knows. And when we're in Sansa's point of view, we only know what Sansa knows, even though it's in third person. So this is kind of a compromise, essentially, between emotion and authority. So we get maybe not as much emotion as if it was a first person, although it depends on kind of how you write it. But some people feel more connected to a character if it's written first person. I actually don't personally. I find first person narration can be a little bit, depending on the character, I find it sometimes a bit off-putting. So sometimes that actually distances myself from the, the character if it's not done in a way that appeals to me personally. Not Nothing on the, the quality of the writing, just in a way that appeals to me. You know, for some people, first person does successfully make you feel closer to the um, character. But then third person writing tends to give a more authoritative perspective. It makes you feel like this is fact because I've been told it in third person. And this creates a really great space for unreliable narration because we feel really close to the character, but we can also dislike the character. We can also distrust the character, but we're not necessarily inclined to immediately distrust what's being said because it seems like it kind of has that authority. So we can be told something and then later be a bit like, hang on a second, maybe maybe we should be skeptical of what we're just told by that character. Now, this is really perfect for portraying grief. Uh, So consider this line. Quote, she didn't remember falling to the floor, but there she was, and Rob was lifting her, holding her in strong arms, end quote. So as opposed to an objective or omniscient point of view, which essentially is one that tells us everything is happening, it's a bit more distant, and it will it's a point of view uh, that lets us know things that the character doesn't necessarily know. In something like that, we might get a line saying, Catelyn fell to the floor, potentially. And that tells us something. It's It still is important information. We can still understand things about Catelyn's um, state of mind or her health or all kinds of things. Um, but getting that extra detail that she doesn't remember falling tells us a bit more about how she's going. I also was struck by Cat telling or describing Rob's arms as strong. So again, with an omniscient or objective POV, if we saw that arms are strong, this would be read as kind of, they're just a fact. Rob is strong. That's what his arms are like. Uh, but in close third person, we know that if Kat describes Rob's arms as strong, that means that she thinks of his arms as strong, which is significant. So we can infer that potentially she is therefore thinking of herself as comparatively weak or fragile right now, she might also be recognizing the difference between Rob and her middle son, Bran, and thinking of Bran as weak and Bran as fragile. So she's recognizing the, the strength of Rob because it's it's not something you would necessarily come to your mind. If, if you fell and someone caught you, if through your head you went, their strong arms caught me, that's that's telling you something. Mm. You, you might have a crush on them, possibly. <laughs> but in this context, I, I think it's more, it's telling a story of fragility. Yeah, I haven't really thought about what style of writing or perspective I prefer generally when I read fiction. But the way in which you've unpacked how this 
close third person writing or this limited omniscient writing is performed and it's it what advantages it gives you it's just very clear to me how martin uses it so effectively over and over and over again and i really like that and as you were speaking particularly in how it invites you as the reader to critically engage with some of the observations and the meanings that the characters are attaching to things they see i immediately reflected back to our chapter on honor and eddard talking about jamie and how yes this this is why it's such an effective style to write in a perspective to write in because we are constantly invited to critically interrogate a lot of the ways in which characters understand certain things like honor like knighthood like grief here right ways and wrong ways to grieve there's very little in this story that we aren't meant to at least have a critical discussion about and i just think it's used to such great effect by george Aramon. And I think we'll leave it there for this chapter. We'll be back soon for Game of Thrones Chapter 15, Sansa 1, and Chapter 16, Eddard 3. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. If you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of The Clash of Critics, be sure to tune into our flagship podcast, Trope Watchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics, and you can email us at A Clash of Critics at gmail.com. See you next time.